Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I suspect each one of you listening today has visited a Tudor house at some point in your life. And I imagine it's one of the large, well-known palaces or houses that were lived in by royalty or nobles. But do you ever visit these places and think, what was the house of an ordinary person in Tudor England like? If so, today's podcast is for you. You'll learn how people's homes were built and how designs changed. You'll learn about the rooms people lived in, how they cooked, cleaned and slept. And for animal lovers like me, we'll also hear something about people's pets. Our guide today is Bethan Watts, author of Inside the Tudor Home, Daily Life in the 16th Century. Bethan is a social historian of medieval and early modern history, completing her PhD at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Inside the Tudor Home is her first book. Bethan, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. So we're going to be talking about homes in the Tudor period and particularly thinking about the lives of ordinary people in those homes. But I thought we could start somewhere that might seem a little strange, which is you talk about the role of roads in the development of houses and homes and explain that by 1535 parishes had to maintain roads, which led to better communications. Can you tie this up for us and explain how this shaped the Tudor home? Yes, yeah, so when we think about the Tudor home, we think about the environments that shaped it and the world around it, perhaps even more so than in society today. Transport and transport links were so much more important, perhaps, to the Tudors than they are today, in the sense that they were not so established as in today's society. So we tend to take for granted a lot of things like transport links and roads, now, we have to remember that in the 16th century, travel was so much more difficult, you could say, than it is today. And the Tudors did have to rely on travelling perhaps more often than we do today. The Tudors perhaps had a greater sense of community than we do. They were reliant on neighbours and markets, particularly due to the fact that they couldn't just go down to the shop, they couldn't just go down to the supermarket, they'd have to rely on travelling via roads. So what difference does that make to the Tudor home? 
The road was so significant because it was a means of being able to transport things like building materials or other vital things that the Tudors needed. Market stalls were a lot less accessible than they are today. So the Tudors would have had to rely on things like well-established roads and well-paved roads to be able to access the wider community, which was so vital to the way that the home was run and the way that people lived in the 16th century. You couldn't just put a house anywhere, you know, in the middle of a moor, it looks picturesque, we've got a great view, because there's no route to it, there's no way of constructing something there. Exactly. We have to remember that a lot of 16th century society was rural. It was a lot greener than we would recognise today. We are so used to having urban areas which are so much more accessible to us than the Tudors would have had. And roads especially provided that gateway for people to connect and to be in touch with their communities and the spaces around them. Yes, some stats on that might be helpful because it's something like 95% of people in the 16th century lived rurally, 5% in towns, and today it's, in England at least, the opposite. And most people lived in a community of fewer than 400 people. And at the time, say 1525, London, the biggest city, is 60,000 people. Norwich has 12,000 people. And Peter Laslett had a wonderful phrase. He said that the cities that we live in today, that the vast majority of us live in, would have been such that our ancestors would barely have recognised their surroundings as human. It's such a very different way of seeing the world with our extreme move to being urban today versus the rural community. Thinking about that rural community, I suppose we can think about the land around people's houses, because this is a period with great shift in terms of thinking about small holdings and working the land and gardens. Did they become a desirable accompaniment to a town or country house at this time? Definitely. And I think even urban houses as well. You do find in some references, John Stowe's Chronicle of London does mention that quite a lot of urban houses did have a form of garden or green space where they could grow their own vegetables. And as I said, markets were so inaccessible than they are perhaps today. The Tudors couldn't just go to the shops to get some fresh fruit or whatever. They'd have to either grow it themselves or they would have to rely on perhaps neighbours or farmers surrounding them who would be able to provide them with food and other such means of surviving. Gardens especially were very important in rural communities. They were a means of survival, not just in terms of food production, but in also the way that it would be sold. It would be a business for them. And for the rural Tudors especially, to have such a means of selling something that was so vital, they could afford to then get bigger plots of land and larger areas where they could work and thus they could improve their standing in society. Let's talk a bit about the construction of homes. Those that remain in England today tend to be 
quite original, actually. They're sort of distinct from each other. One thinks of something like Little Morden Hall. We know, of course, that they used a timber frame and the most basic of houses was on that kind of crook frame. Can you tell us a bit about Tudor construction methods and how long it took to build a home? I think that was perhaps one of the most surprising things for me when I was researching the book was that you'd expect perhaps construction in the 16th century to take quite a while. This is a time before power tools and before building regulations as we know it. So it surprised me to learn that actually a lot of buildings went up very quickly in the 16th century. When I was researching crook frames or A-frames as they're sometimes known, it surprised me that some of these houses would come prefabricated and a lot of the Tudors, even if they didn't have any kind of construction experience, could put together these wooden frames and timber buildings and fill in the gaps with things like wattle and daub and brick and stone to form the Tudor home. You mentioned stone and wattle and daub, and these are the things that are absolutely being used for those at the lower end of society. But we do find the development of brick in the 16th century that had a huge effect on building. What do you think the bricks made possible that earlier construction methods could not? The invention of brick was a turning point in social history in the sense that it provided people with a chance to better insulate their homes, to have structurally sound buildings. When you think of the Middle Ages, for example, wattle and daub would be quite flimsy and the poorer communities who relied on these effectively mud houses would find that they were perhaps more prone to flooding or perhaps more prone to cracking and thus were very dangerous. And there are records of wattle and daub walls, for example, falling and collapsing onto the inhabitants inside. So with the introduction of brick in the 16th century, that danger was minimised. It was still dangerous because cement, as we now know it, wasn't as fully formed in the 16th century as it is today. And... Brick helped insulate the home and it did help keep out drafts and the colds that would have otherwise very affected the Tudor who lived inside. Now, one revolution in house building in this period is the creation of the internal chimney. And I looked into this for a programme I made years ago, and it's absolutely fascinating stuff. It's amazing how fascinating a chimney can be. <laughs> can you talk about this revolution in house building and why the introduction of an internal chimney had effects that were quite so far reaching? I think it's important to remember that before the 16th century and in the Middle Ages especially, houses were or tended to be just singular roomed places and you'd have entire families or sometimes servants and even animals crowded around an open fire within the centre of the home. But with the introduction of the fireplace and the chimney, all of this drastically changed and I think we underestimate the importance of something that we now take for granted because not only did the fireplace afford people heat, which perhaps they wouldn't have necessarily had, 
But the introduction of the fireplace as well was central in adding an extensions to the Tudor home. With the fireplace came dedicated kitchens and dedicated living spaces. Kitchens could now be built around it. People no longer had to cook and feed their families within the same rooms that they ate and they bathed. They could now have dedicated rooms where the fireplace and the chimney was insular. But it also led to the division of households as well, in the sense that walls could now be constructed and chimneys, perhaps even more than one, could be built within the home. You especially find towards the later end of the 16th century the construction of fireplaces in upstairs rooms. You know, in the Middle Ages, they didn't even have upstairs rooms. So chimneys were vital in construction progress during the time. Yeah, so this is a kind of elite technology that's moving down into lower end of society. Although I must say that the house I live in, which was built at the end of the 18th century, started as exactly the sort of place you're describing with a chimney at each end. And the upper floor was only added, I think, in the 1970s. So it's very much a situation that's ongoing, actually, for centuries at the very poorest end of society. You know, I live in a labourer's cottage. So I think that we have to imagine the technology takes time to move through society. And when you go and look at Anne Hathaway's cottage, you have a very good example, don't you, of the introduction of that technology for those who have a little bit of money in the Tudor period, but not a vast amount. Definitely. But there is so much technology that we take for granted now. Even such things as window panes and running water, we're so used to having them in our homes that the Tudors weren't so used to these things. And with the inclusion of water taps or window panes and chimney breasts, they revolutionised the way that people lived in the 16th century. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Now, we're talking a little bit as if most people were constructing their own home. Perhaps we should talk a little bit about Tudor estate agencies, or in other words, how people were procuring homes, the rental situations, whether people were purchasing. How did people get a house? In the 16th century, there were quite a few different ways of how to procure a house. Perhaps most common of all was inheriting a house. So perhaps you'd have been born and raised in the same house that you would later die in, that you would then leave to your children and your children's children. But of course, there were other ways to procure a house. One way was through constructing it yourself. And as I mentioned, using timber frames and these prefabricated kind of houses where you could just put it together and slot it together, even if you didn't have any construction background. However, there were houses that were for sale in the Tudor period, which surprised me when I was researching because I never imagined a Tudor estate agent. It wasn't the same process as we would have today in the sense that we wouldn't look for a house and then decide that's the one that we want and we'd have to pay for it. Most of the time 16th century Tudors would perhaps find a small holding which they thought was desirable and they would rent it from the Lord who owns the land around it, or they would rent it from the crown. So yeah, there were quite a few ways of how to procure a house in the 16th century, whether it be through renting or inheritance, or just outrightly buying it or building it yourself. Now you mentioned that the introduction of these internal chimneys creates separate spaces for, say, cooking. You have a kitchen. Many of us will have gone to grand 16th century houses Burley, for example, or Hampton Court, and seen the enormous kitchens there. Can we talk about the kitchens of ordinary people? Would there have been features that they shared with those grandiose kitchens at palaces and extraordinary houses? And would a kitchen in the Tudor period be at all recognisable to us? Definitely. We tend to have this idea that the 16th century was so provincial and was so different to our society today but we would have recognised things like tripods that would have been above open fireplaces that would have been used to cook food. And we would have also recognised things like parlours and butteries. 
which would have kept food cold and they were still obviously in use up until into the 21st century. So yeah, I think we would recognise the Tudor kitchen as a kitchen. The kitchen of the poorer classes and the lower classes would have definitely had some similarities with perhaps the kitchens of the wealthier classes in the sense that some of them may have had fireplaces and some of them may have had dedicated kind of areas for things like water, for example. Of course, they didn't have running water taps as perhaps Elizabeth I did, but they would have had perhaps areas where they could cool their food or they could ice their foods or they could salt their foods that were found in both the houses of the poor and the rich in the 16th century. And one thing that they had in common was that whether they were at the top end of society or in the lower sort, all homes had somewhere to sleep. But of course, beds and bedrooms, if indeed there were bedrooms, could come in very different forms. Can you give some examples? In the earlier period of the Tudor age, you do find that there are records of entire families sharing beds with each other or sharing beds with servants, or sharing beds with farm animals who would wander through the house. I don't think personally that this was the norm, because you do find references to people buying mattresses or people buying pillows in things like wills. And actually something that very interested me and surprised me was a lot of beds would be left in wills to people to inherit from their families. So the bedroom came into creation around the end of the Middle Ages with the introduction of things like fireplaces, which could lead to the division of rooms. Rooms were no longer singular. Families could now afford to sleep in rooms separate to each other. And rooms that were dedicated solely for sleeping and for other recreational activities. So the shift you're suggesting is one away from everyone sharing one bed, but certainly we will find throughout the 16th century examples in the archives of people sharing beds with servants, with each other. So it's not an entire transformation, it's just that there are perhaps more spaces and so not everybody is in together. Is that right? Yes. As I said, towards the latter end of the 16th century, you do find separate bedrooms, you do find separate beds, you do find records of people purchasing separate mattresses and people sleeping in areas separate to the rest of their families, which was something perhaps the people of the Middle Ages didn't quite experience. And I suppose what your point is, is that they're moving from one communal space in which everything is done to having rooms dedicated to a certain use. So did they have still a kind of communal area in ordinary homes, quote unquote, you know, what we might call a sitting room or a lounge? Or do you feel that kind of single use space was only for the very wealthy? No, I don't think so. I think just as we do today, the Tudors, even the poorer members of society would have had communal living areas, would have had dining rooms, would have had areas that perhaps they could have entertained guests 
or could have congregated as families in living spaces. And I think perhaps it's more apt that the poorer people of society may have had more sense of community and communal kind of living than perhaps even the richer members of society who would have naturally been separated to some degree from the people who lived around them. I suppose one of the things that we think of when we have a picture of this period or the centuries that preceded it is of somebody having a chamber pot and throwing it out of a window. So let's talk about what we call bathrooms, both in a sense of places where people went to wash themselves and also where they went to the loo. How did people function? You know, we have guard robes in castles and palaces, but what did ordinary people do? There's this belief that people in the 16th century were backwards in how they approached hygiene and sanitation. I think we're so accustomed to seeing on television and in fictional books this idea that the Tudors didn't wash, they didn't keep clean, and that they would throw their chamber pots out the window. Actually, in my research, I discovered that wasn't the case at all. You do find dedicated sewage systems, you do find plumbing systems, especially in urban areas and under townhouses or other city kind of spaces. You do find outhouses and you do find, as you said, garderobes and other kind of chamber pots. There were different types of lavatories in the 16th century, but to say that they were provincial is completely wrong because they weren't at all. The Tudors were people just like us. They were aware of sanitation, they were aware of hygiene, and I don't think they would have appreciated throwing things out the window onto the streets below when the majority of Tudors would have, for example, used waste as like composting materials, they would have buried things, and they would have ensured that they weren't living in the mess and the waste they had created. Absolutely. When we're talking about cleaning, cleaning in the house at this period of time must have been quite a feat. I love how you describe the strength of ordinary women. Can you give us some insight into the arduous nature of cleaning tasks? Take, for example, laundry. In an age where we didn't have running water, the Tudor women especially would have had to locate the nearest source of open water, so whether that be a lake or a stream, and they would have either taken the laundry with them to be washed, or they would have gathered the water and taken it back to the home to conduct the laundry. This took such strength, not only physical strength, but also to have to do it pretty much every single day must have taken such a toll on these women. And when you consider the family sizes as well back then, especially if they were in rural communities where people spent a lot of time outdoors, there would have been a lot of laundry to generate. But not only that, when we think about cleaning the home itself, that was a task that fell in the women's domain. So things like cleaning dishes, for example, or cleaning floors, we tend to think that the Tudors perhaps didn't do those sort of things, but actually they did. So to clean the dishes, for example, the Tudors would scour things with sand or salt rather than using washing up liquid as we would today. And even 
cleaning the floors. Perhaps they would have used things like ammonia, which perhaps we wouldn't find so nice today. But the Tudors certainly did keep clean, and they did so by however means possible. Yes, that laundry load must have been great. Thank goodness they were only washing their shifts and not all their layers, you know. They brushed <laughs> down most of their outer clothes. I am a pet lover, so I have to ask about animals in the home. We've talked about farm animals, and I know... Anne Boleyn had a dog and Wolsey had a cat and we know of lots of kings and queens and courtiers having pets. Did residents of ordinary Tudor homes keep pets? This was something that really surprised me when I was doing my research. I was surprised by how many families in rural areas and also in urban areas who kept pets of some form. I had always assumed that cats, for example, would be kept in the home to get rid of vermin, to catch rats, for example. But actually, you do find a lot of records of Tudor families keeping cats just for the sake of it, because they enjoy the company of cats, for example. And as you said, you do find some cat lovers, Thomas Wolsey, for example, who treated their cats as an extension of their families. And the same could be said for dogs. I always assumed that dogs were perhaps used for hunting or were associated perhaps with the upper echelons of society. But you do find a lot of poorer members of Tudor society owning dogs and playing with dogs, taking them for walks, just as we would today. Finally then, what's the most surprising thing you've found about the Tudor home in the course of preparing this book? I think the thing that most surprised me was just how similar these 16th century people were to us today. These people lived and were born and were raised in places that we would recognise ourselves, perhaps not exactly as the homes that we live in today, but in areas that we would have certainly recognised, kitchens and bedrooms and living spaces. I also think I was very surprised at how colourful the lives of these people were. They didn't just go to work and go to bed. These people loved, these people mourned, these people entertained, and they lived their lives just as we do today. Yes, 500 years isn't that long a period in the great history of humankind. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the Tudor home. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott and my producer Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just The Tudors. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.